You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Power Athlete Nation, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. We have a special guest in studio today, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's a medical doctor and founder of the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine, an innovative medical practice and education entity focused on muscle health and wellness. Thanks so much for having me. Sounds amazing. I got that off your website. So uh, do you go by Gabby? No. It's always Gabby. Yeah, that's like a verb. Can you imagine? So chatty. What, Gabby? Yeah, terrible. Really? Oh, my God. Do you go by Big G? Do you go by, like, are there any nicknames in there? G. G Money? Yeah, actually, yeah. I'll go with G Money. People ask me what my uh, um, astrological sign is, and I usually say dollar. (laughs) Hey-oh. I I just just want to say that, thank God I didn't wear heels. I usually wear heels to an interview, but... uh, Oh, yeah, we had to trek the ranch. Uh, Show the the gym and the shop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you get to see a little bit of what we do here at Power Athlete, which, which is, is amazing. Uh, yeah, we built. I mean, did you take her in the shop? Uh huh. Oh, you get to see all the crazy shit that we're building. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So. and I also did bring workout gear just in case. Oh, well, Even open better. gym. Well, we have been fighting similar battles, and that's the importance of getting this on. So, shout out to Sorelli uh, at the Everyday Warrior. Uh, every day, yeah, Everyday, everyday Warrior. Yeah. Warrior. He's on a mission, and you're focused on on muscle. And we've been battling this for a long time, as long as we've been around, that more muscle is better for you long-term. So a lot to unpack and explore here. And one quote I picked up from you, muscle is the organ of longevity, and that's where I want to begin. Yeah, I love it. Before we talk about muscle, I think it's really important to lay the foundation for what is out there right now. Oh, yeah. Everybody talks about obesity. Obesity, we have an obesity epidemic, and that if we just solve this obesity problem, all our issues are going to go away. But the reality is, is are we overfat? Yeah, maybe, but actually, are we under-muscled? And the concept that muscle is the organ of longevity is that the diseases of obesity and the diseases that ride along with obesity, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, that these are actually diseases of skeletal muscle first that begin decades earlier. That is where this concept of muscle-centric medicine came from, really trying to shift the paradigm. And when you think about a paradigm, it's really just a construct for how we're operating, a construct of beliefs that we've put in place that we're going to now execute on. And we've been operating under this construct of obesity. And I believe that that's wrong. And that muscle is the organ of longevity. And if we can interface muscle with health, we can change the trajectory of the way we age. And just in terms of physical appearance, <laughs> uh, I've never seen anybody not look better by putting on five pounds of muscle. And we people all the time like, oh, I need to lose some weight. I'm like, if you put on more muscle, yeah. you'll just end up looking out a lot better. Because we worked with clients that have actually dieted down and then they just look like same mm. bag of shit, just smaller. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, if you put on muscle, everybody wants to be more jacked and put on more size. 
Yes, uh, and, uh, jacked and tan and well, it, it just good looks hair. Yes, yeah, <laughs> all these things. Uh, I did a talk for the NSCA on uh, metabolic flexibility, and I had this idea that metabolic flexibility was going to be like the defining rod. It was going to allow us to find everything we need to know about training. And after about ten years of reading all the research, uh, one thing was clear. Um, the more the person that carries the most muscle in relation to body fat is the most metabolically flexible, regardless of how you got there. Mm-hmm. So all these people talking about starving yourself and these you know supplements and all these other shit, it's all bullshit. Yep. And there was no determining factor. If you carry more muscle in relation to fat, you're metabolically flexible because muscle is more insulin sensitive. Fat's extremely oxidative. Just be more, carry more. Yeah. And it seemed very simple to me. And I don't know why this is uh, like like the fact that we're even discussing this. It just feels like a non-starter. I'm like, uh, and when you, <laughs> but it, but I love what you're saying. And the interesting aspect is that what you're talking about is foundational principles that are largely overlooked. People are talking about how we can fast, how we can take this supplement or that supplement. And listen, can supplementation be helpful? Yes. Nothing is going to be helpful if you don't have the muscle that you need. So. Um... Where does it start? And more importantly, I mean, uh, think about the narrative. Like, how did like like where did this start from? How are you tackling it? And more importantly, like, uh, I mean, just kicking holes in this yeah. because uh, I'm always constantly looking for patient zero. I'm like, who was the first person that said this? How did we get on this train? And where do we? If we could go back in time, could we kill that person and stop <laughs> this? I want to go find the guy that first poo-hooed muscle and said, ah, everybody needs to lose fat. I don't know, and I, I think that that would be a great idea to find this person, and, and we should we should do that. Because what's happened is in the medical community and also in fitness, we've been constantly focused on obesity. And the issue has become that it's completely disempowering. And by the way, we're fatter than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. We're not healthier, we're fatter. And if we had the correct question and we were looking at the right thing, then we would have solved that problem, right? Because, well, here's the construct that we're working on that we all need to get less fat. And how are we gonna execute off that? Well. Maybe we're going to do more cardio. Maybe we're going to starve ourselves. Maybe we're going to do X, Y, and Z. But if that was the way to approach it, we would have fixed it. So it's not the way to approach it. And I I think, and there's data to support this, that insulin resistance and these issues with skeletal muscle can begin when you're 18, if not younger. The concept that there is such thing as a healthy, sedentary person doesn't exist. And our society, we are much less physically active. The barometer for which we hold ourselves accountable to has been completely decreased, right? So where do we go from here? The only way that we can make any improvement is if we stop hyper-focusing on obesity as the problem. And you cannot look at the news or look at any kind of advertisement where someone is talking about being proactive and generating more muscle, not as it relates to fitness, because I think in the fitness world, we can all agree that muscle has been really the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. Muscle and performance is the, the pinnacle for strength, power, hypertrophy. It, it is pinnacle and critical. But remove the athlete portion and talk about the rest of the world, they're totally missing the boat. And it's not actually a standard of care. So when you, I mean, well, you have great physicians, but it, when you go to the doctor's office, and by the way, you're like seven foot three, and I'm only five one. But when you go to the doctor's office, they maybe measure your body fat. Do they? Um, you're gonna find this crazy. Uh, I haven't been to a conventional <laughs> doctor in a really long time. So the doctors I go see are probably people like you, like Tom Inkledon or Doc Parsley. Yep. Uh, you know, Doc's my doc. 
Um, you know, we uh, do a ton of blood work and everything comes down to, you know, what does it look like? What does your diet look like? What's the training look like? If something's broken, uh, I go see Craig Bueller, uh, Dr. Bob here, you know, different chiropractic or different kind of uh, physical things. Because for me, uh, limitation physically means that I'm not training as much, which translates to me not being as healthy. Right. And everything for me is about uh, balancing micronutrients, making sure I'm eating a good diet, sleeping, and all of that's measured through blood work and having really jiggy people like, <laughs> like Kirk and them. So, like, I haven't been to a doctor, you know, the uh, my wife's like, hey, at some point you're going to have to probably go get your prostate checked and all that. And I'm like, sure, I got no problem with that. But I don't even know who my general care doctor would be in that way just because I... Um, coming from the NFL, uh, where uh, I have a very tumultuous experience in the, with, with doctors because they would just trade lives. So you'd go in, uh, talk to a doctor, have an injury, and the doctor would talk to you, he'd go talk to the team, and then come back and talk to you and just straight lie to your face. So I have a natural mm. distrust of doctors. And then the other problem is I'd run into, and you listen to these doctors who were not healthy in any way, trying to give you nutrition and health advice. Yeah. And uh, I have a real hard time like listening to an unhealthy person, you know, like the age old like picture video of the doctor, you know, smoking and being like, oh, you need to get more exercise. It just felt disingenuous to me. And so uh, the other issue we know is we know how broken the uh, standard of care in this country is where we're just better living through pharmacology. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you know, you don't have to exercise more. You don't have to do this. Just take these pills. And that feels broken to me. And so um, it's hard to subscribe and pay into a system that you know is broken for people that aren't really trying to manage your care. They're just trying to like fucking, you know, make sure that the bars are just stiff enough to where you can't escape the cage. Mm. Do uh, what I would consider algorithmic medicine. I think where we can really create change is educating our physicians in the way that when a patient goes in, depend, you know, whether it's a traditional medical practice or a more integrative practice, is that you measure skeletal muscle mass. You measure strength as a standard. We even have modalities where you look at the, the tissue under ultrasound. Is this tissue look like, does this tissue look like a marbled steak or not? <laughs> you know, what, what kind of metabolic parameters are we looking at? And not only that, but are we looking at an individual who is effectively exercising? And I don't think that we have all the answers yet, but if we put the amount of energy and effort that we put into obesity, into muscle as the organ of longevity, you would see an entirely different outcome. Is that because um, to build muscle, I mean, we just did a podcast the other day, where a guy asked like, hey, can I gain muscle and lose fat at the same time? 100%. Yeah. If you eat a high protein diet and caloric restriction while you're banging heavy weights, it'll, it, it works. We've seen it happen over and over again. Uh, the issue, I think, why doctors do not want to tackle how to gain muscle, more importantly, recommend the gain of muscle, is it kind of goes against two things. One, you're going to need a high-protein diet, so means, and also nutrient-dense yep. you know, protein. So it's going to be coming from an animal-based deal. I mean, you can't believe me. You can give them 600 grams of pea protein. It's still not going <laughs> to fucking work. So now you're pushing a model that I feel like is hated within you know uh, everybody within our government. I mean, this push against fossil fuels and cow farts and all this stuff you listen to, which is so preposterous right. um, that if you read, you know, Sacred Cow, Rob Wolf's book, or you read, um, um, who is it, Diane? Rogers. Diane Rogers from Sustainable Dish, um, it, it dispels everything. And, but yet people have attached these narratives. So one, you got a protein diet. Two, you actually had to know how to build muscle, which means that these doctors would be better served by actually going down to the Gold's Gym and maybe talking to some bodybuilders that for all the ridiculousness, those dudes know how to put on a ton of muscle and carry muscle well for long periods of time. So, and there's really no magical pill that they can get it because there's no way to get muscle without some form of hard work. 
So it's easier to go with fat where you just like starve them, give them this. I mean, try to balance, uh, you know, I was like looking at a bunch of, um, uh, because my son's type one, uh, I have all these, um, what are the alerts set up for diabetes mm-hmm. and a lot of type two stuff comes through. Uh, the amount of like drugs, injections, peptides, uh, studies that they're doing in terms of like, you know, trying to manage type two with all these different ways. It's, it's amazing. And there's like a billion dollar, uh, pharmacology associated with mm-hmm. it. So I feel like it's easier for those doctors from their, from their, you know, from the chair working with their people, it's easier for them to tackle obesity and then it pays into a model, which is like you said, it's failing. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're still not pushing the drugs. Right. And, and I think the other aspect to that is it has to go back to reframing the paradigm of thinking which means there needs to be a handful of renegade doctors that look at, you know, if we repeat something long enough, we believe it to be true. Sure. Even if it's not. What we have to do is we have to go back to the foundation and re-educate not only ourselves, but our physicians to think about medicine and the outcomes in a very proactive way, which means optimizing for dietary protein, which means optimizing for, I believe, hypertrophy, strength and hypertrophy. You know, yes, there's yoga and Pilates, but is that going to be optimal for taking you into aging? Well, um, so I'll just give you an example. Uh, years ago, when we were in Newport Beach, um, I had a gym and we traded with these people at a yoga place. They wanted to learn to lift weights. They wanted us to be more flexible. Every one of them that came in, uh, every one of the yoga people was so flexible. But the minute we got them under any load, they had zero range of motion mm. active. So they couldn't squat a barbell. I mean, like watching them pull a bar off the ground was like watching a, a, a dog shit a razor blade to quote Andy Stumpf. Uh, and, I've never actually seen that before. Uh, but the, you, you've seen a dog shit and then imagine shitting a razor blade where they're shaking. That's how they look trying to pull. Because I remember I sent Andy the video and he's like, dog shitting a razor blade. I'm like, God damn it, that's great. Um, but everything they did under load was awful. They had no range of motion. And that's where uh, I got into this like passive versus active range mm-hmm. of motion. You need to be extremely flexible under load. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of these amazing things where now everybody's like pushing flexibility in yoga. And I, and I, I agree it's a place, but at the end of the day, just having somebody be passively flexible doesn't benefit them in the ranges of motion. We need them to be active. So they have to be strong. Right. Well, strength, we know that, um, the healthier the skeletal muscle, the longer the survivability, the more likely you are to, going to survive any kind of illness. And if you think about it, where can you say in any part of health and wellness or medicine that if you are this one thing, your ability to survive is going to be greater? So you, to reiterate, the more muscle you carry, the greater chance you have for surviving. All-cause mortality. Wow. What, where else can we say that? Nothing. And it's not just the muscle mass, it's actually the health and the quality of the tissue. You know, there's this conversation where people will say, okay, well, obese individuals carry more muscle mass. And I would argue by the time that you are struggling with obesity, that skeletal mass, that that skeletal muscle probably looks more like a, a marbled ribeye steak right. than it does look like a filet. So do you take muscle biopsies and put them on I beef? used to, I used to, uh, in my fellowship. I did a fellowship at WashU in St. Louis and part of my job was, So I I did a two-year clinical fellowship, which was I saw patients, so obese patients and geriatric patients at the end of life. And the other part of my responsibility was to do clinical research, where I did brain imaging, we did physical training, I did muscle and fat biopsies. And when you look under a microscope and when you 
even do a CT or MRI at individuals that are obese, for the most part, their tissue looks different. Mm. Uh, Kelly Starrett, um, who I've known for fucking way longer than I care, uh, care to uh, actually admit, um, in his practice used to joke uh, that people that were heavy, he would describe tissue, he'd call it piss poor tissue. And he could tell basically body fat and diet and everything based upon how their tissue felt under when he was working on them. And I always asked him, and I was like, how's the tissue feel? It's like, it feels hydrated. I know you eat a good diet. And I know you're actually lifting weights. Mm. People that don't do those things, he used to call it, it felt like uh, when he was working on like uh, Rice Krispies, like <sighs> feeling like, like it was like a thick, leathery Rice Krispie feel. And he called it piss poor tissue. Mm. I mean, that, I mean, that sounds <laughs> although I pretty, really, I really do like Rice Krispies. Don't, don't tell anyone that, but, um, uh, Rice Krispie treats <laughs> are amazing. Um, but they, yeah, I just thought that that was a, a wild deal that, you know, you can basically tell somebody if they're exercising, what it looks like from that tissue quality. And all you have to do is ask somebody that does some form of body tissue work and they'll be like, Oh yeah. That's interesting. I actually hadn't thought about that because where I think we all struggle as a community, at least from my perspective is we don't have an easy way to assess muscle quality. We can do it through strength. You can do it through a biopsy, which that's not the standard of care, but what ultimately where I see muscle centric medicine and this concept of really focusing on muscle going is being actually able as a routine care parameter, look at the quality of tissue. It doesn't exist yet. Uh. Okay. I was, it, I was waiting for you to be like, and then this is how we're going to measure it. I mean, we uh, are in the process of... How would you measure it? Ultrasound, I think, would be most effective and easy with a low cost threshold. Kind of like the ultrasound, yeah. that, uh, you know, for a baby almost. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky because are you looking at the bicep? Are you looking at, you know, the vastus lateralis? Uh, but I do think that we're going to eventually get there. But what we can do is we can look at blood markers. Mm-hmm. And the interesting aspect of that is... By the time someone is showing signs of insulin resistance or elevated blood glucose, you know that they've had uh, poor muscle health for a decade. By the time they are showing it in their blood work, there's got to have been issues. So these are all just very interesting concepts that I think that we need to really reframe. You know, when you look at elevated triglycerides or elevated insulin levels or elevated blood glucose, it's never too late to make an adjustment, but these things have come a decade before. So the next logical thing that you're thinking is how do we create and maintain healthy muscle tissue, right? Mm -hmm. And that goes back to your statement about dietary protein. You can't build from nothing. And the current recommendation for dietary protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram. Mm. Wow, that's pathetic. It's pretty low. 0.8 grams per kilogram. So if you're, I bet you're a numbers guy, how much do you weigh? Uh, 272 pounds. And if you did 0.8 grams per kilogram, how much protein would that be? Well, let's see. Well, uh, 2.2, so you pretty much cut it in half. That'd be 0.4 grams. I mean, we'd be, would it be 280? be 70 grams. Right around 70? 70 gr- you would turn into a wilted flower at 70 grams uh, of protein a day. Yeah, you know what? Um, so years ago, uh, when we used to travel and teach seminars for CrossFit, uh, occasionally I used to people come in with a very serious model of that your body can only digest 20 to 30 grams of protein per pound of, or uh, per sitting. And I remember being like... Uh, I don't even think I would sit down and eat 20 or 30 grams. If I was going to do that, I would just not eat and I'd just stack it on a bigger meal. So, I mean, 70 grams, uh, one meal. So that's what the current, if you were to listen to the current model, that's what your recommendation would be. You wouldn't even, that is not going to cover your, I don't know, your quad. Well, what, um, 
when did this change? And, and I think like we were talking about the time machine analogy, but I'm fascinated on like, uh, there was a, a period before World War One, and mm-hmm. um, I kind of got into this a little bit different in that uh, I got asked to speak on the Army's new ACFT uh, Army combat fitness test. Um, so we were doing a bunch of work with uh, Fort Bragg with the 18th Airborne Corps, and we're going there and implementing power out systems for the Amazing. 18th Airborne Corps. My husband was stationed at Fort Bragg. Yeah. Oh, Fayetteville. So, so sorry. <laughs> sorry know, to hear. It was, on his, tra- it was uh, his, his last uh, post, yeah. So we spent a lot of time in Fayetteville. Um, so uh, just about the time we were doing this, new ACFT comes out, and I got asked to go speak in D.C. at uh, NDU on the history of physical fitness tests for the military. So there was like a real interesting thing where World War One, um, we didn't have to have any physical fitness tests because they were just pulling kids off the farm. They were pretty smart that they made the grenades the size of uh, uh, baseballs because these kids could all throw baseballs. And that was one of the tests, can you throw a baseball? And they took those kids and they were all pretty, you know, stout farm kids that had, you know, grown up on the farm and were pretty resourceful and had a lot of skills. They sent them over and, you know, now in conventional war, we have like rotations and there's, uh, you know, deployments. When we sent people to war, they didn't come home until we won the war. And if you look at World War I, um, none of these issues really were much of a, or they, I'm sorry, there weren't really much of an issue with the quality of the soldier. All of a sudden, you go to World War II, and 70% of the kids that they drafted were unfit for physical service. Mm-hmm. And so John F. Kennedy, which we have right there, writes The Soft American, which was in Sports Illustrated, voicing all of these problems that we're still dealing with today. That's, yeah. that's absolutely right. And I'm so glad that you brought up World War II. Do you know the average um, weight of a male during that time is about 150 pounds and the average female was about 120 pounds the soldier that was sent overseas their protein intake was roughly if they were injured um or if they were in major combat was 250 grams a day wow that was back then yeah while on the home front the individuals were encouraged to grow victory gardens yeah eat more grains, more lower quality food to then send it overseas. Yeah, you, you'd, uh, my dad talked about that, that uh, they couldn't get butter. So right. they would give you margarine, which was basically oil, and then they would give you this package of coloring that you would put in to make this margarine. And um, so my dad, when he passed away, was 80, obviously childhood depression, uh, born in 37. So he talks about this and uh, he loved butter. And it was, and when I always ask him, like, Dad, what's up with this butter? And he's like, until you have to eat what the government gave us with that fucking margarine, you will be so excited to see it every day. And even until he was 80 years old, he still was a fan of butter. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, though? In 1940, they recognized the importance of high-quality protein and animal products, and they rationed it, and they sent it overseas. And what we're actually seeing now is almost the same, I don't want to say the same recommendations but packaged in a different narrative yeah. 40 years later or no 80 years later we're now encouraged to go more plant-based and not eat high quality animal proteins for for during that time i don't hang out with those people <laughs> I, I don't need that level of negativity uh, in my life and so, I'm so uh, sorry. I, I know I, it's it's funny but it's crazy because we live in this little microcosm yeah. Where all of our friends well, don't you, believe this narrative. Kids functions, you run into those parents. Uh, they exist. So uh, one of the kids at, um, so the way we make lunches is I cook. Uh, you know, we cook some forma, you know, steaks, whatever it is. And then the next morning uh, we cut it up and that's what my kids eat for lunch. And one of the kids asked my daughter if we were rich because we, she eats steak every day for mm. lunch. And she's like, what do you mean? 
what do you eat? And they have like Lunchables and this other stuff. And she's like, uh, like, like she came home. She's like, Dad, are we rich because we eat steak? I'm like, I wouldn't say we're rich, but I don't feed you guys Lunchables. Right. And uh, but it was interesting that that kid equated being rich with eating steak. That is interesting. Um, yeah, the the conversations and the and the current recommendations, the dietary protein recommendations haven't changed in the last thirty years, and that means only one of two things to me. It means we haven't increased our knowledge of dietary protein in the last thirty years. I doubt that's true. Or number two, all these other issues, whether it's carbohydrates, fats, have really taken the focal point and people have failed to see the importance of dietary protein. And again, this may be different for our communities because they recognize that you should do hard shit and you should lift heavy things and be resilient. But also we have to acknowledge and address the rest of the world that maybe they don't know what to think and they hear that eating a diet really high in carbohydrates and not training and they should be fasting and eating a low protein diet for longevity, I mean, it's going to impact massively the health of of these individuals who may not be in these microcosms. And that's a problem. And educating and understanding that 0.8 grams per kilogram is the bare minimum to prevent deficiencies and not optimal. And there's- When did that recommendation come in? Because you said 30 years ago, which in my head, when I think 30 years ago, I think 1970s. Yeah. And now it's 1990s. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, man, so that pivoted in the 90s? Yes. Um, It pivoted in the 70s. So in the 70s, I believe that these first recommendations, is that true, seven? Yeah, um, I, 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 so I do the same thing. When I think yeah. 30 years ago, I think the 70s. <laughs> and then my kids are like, 30 years ago was the 90s, Dad. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Okay. Uh, so, because we were talking about music. Yeah. Um, they were- uh, it was, I think it was before that, that these recommendations, the, the 0.8 grams per kilogram have been instituted for decades and decades and have not changed despite the changing information over the last 30 years we know that uh, likely individuals will be much more optimized with double that 1.6 grams easily per kilogram yet that is not recommended yet um okay so i mean we've all been like we know that we're under proteined Mm -hmm. um and they're they're catching that narrative everywhere i mean it's not just coming from doctors it's coming from you know tv shows like the view and all these other things that I would never watch. But when you see, you kind of Google and you see like who's making these recommendations. Um, I was invited to an NFL deal about 10 years ago. And the guy who was um, um, the Surgeon General at the time, uh, older black dude, I can't remember his name. He got up and gave a talk and was pushing all these narratives and mm-hmm. was talking about, you know, more carbohydrates. And I just got done um, hearing Dr. Lustig speak, mm-hmm. you know, and um, actually started hitting him on this stuff. And the dude went from uh, giving a speech to being so angry that I would question anything he had to say. And I remember being like, you know, how come we can't have a nuanced uh, conversation? Why is it that in your line of work, it's either what you guys believe and everybody else is wrong? Right. And it's because there's this, um, I don't know, weird arrogance that they've been somehow fed this and I just can't buy into this narrative because they would have to be absolute fucking crazy people to buy it. And I think the, the next question is who stands to benefit from these narratives? Cooey bono. <laughs> we, all the time we get on this, like who benefits because it's not us. Yeah, who, who benefits from the narrative financially? Um, the drug companies. Drugs. Um, so when did the sugar people hand off to the drug companies? Uh, so the sugar deal happened with uh, Ansel Key's seven country study, mm-hmm. which uh, was wild because a couple years ago, they actually did the forensics and figured out that the sugar, sugar lobby paid him 10 G's to vilify saturated fat over sugar in that study. 
Mm-hmm. And so what's amazing is that came out and it wasn't even a fucking blip. Right. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. So the single study that they built this entire model on of statins and, uh, you know, saturated fat being this killer for heart disease and all that. I mean, which doc, you know, I mean, if you look at somebody's blood work who eats a, a you know, low, a diet low in dietary cholesterol, fucking terrible androgen levels. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, dude, you're effectively making yourself a eunuch. And uh, I, we, we've seen it for years. I'm yeah. like, if you eat uh, low protein, low diet and saturated fat, you're going to look like a eunuch. I mean, I've seen these guys kill themselves. Yeah. And they're like, but the doctor says this. And I'm like, yeah, we should get his testosterone levels checked. Right. So um, that, that hits. And about six months after that study came out, they released a study that actually uh, disproved everything in that study, but nobody listened. And we built a, multi, a multi-trillion dollar um, pharmacology business, I mean, really pills and all this other stuff based upon this broken model right. from answer key, answer I case. think there's uh, 40 million people on statins. It's a lot. For listeners out there uh, that don't know what a statin is, is that for like a heart rate? Like what would... um, so, oh, sorry. Uh, LDL cholesterol typically. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. it's a drug that kills that, but the way it kills it in the pathway pretty much destroys everything else. So sure. Yeah, doc- all, yeah. Dietary cholesterol. Oh, so sorry. Total cholesterol, but LDL is primarily what is targeted. And you know, when you think about it, you know, listen, do some people have a negative impact that are eating very, very high saturated fat diets? Yeah. But is yeah. it the mass majority of people? It's not. And especially when calories are controlled. Yeah. Um, I think that that's all, all really important. But what you're saying is you're bringing up a very good point that There's been a foundation of belief and a narrative that has been pushed that has not been corrected yet. Do you know that they took the dietary, the cholesterol recommendations out of the dietary guidelines, I think in 2015? Yeah. But if you still go and you speak with your physician, he'll say you should reduce your dietary cholesterol, which dietary cholesterol has little to no impact on blood level cholesterol. Yeah. Because there typically is a set point. Yeah. All all that research came out that was, um, you know, like your body's going to produce more diet or sorry, your body's going to produce more cholesterol a single day than you could consume. Mm -hmm. It will, it will make up. There is a set point that is needed and required. So then the question becomes, um, why this, well, what should somebody do? And I recommend easily one gram per pound ideal body weight. Simple. Easily. Whatever your body weight is, just eat that in protein. Or whatever you want it to be. If you want to lose, uh, you want to lose weight. Then if you're, you know, I'm 110 pounds and I. Those are rookie numbers. We got to bulk you up to <laughs> at least 130. Yeah, no, I, I'm five one one fifty. Hard pass, hard pass. Um, but for me, I eat anywhere between 120 to 130 grams of protein, right? And is there any negative benefit or any negative impact of? Uh, higher dietary protein, not that we've ever seen. No, we, uh, when we looked at all the research, even in the protein overfeeding study, That's where right. they were feeding people like- uh, 3.3 grams per kilogram. Yeah, the people Sounds actually awesome. lost fat and they just, got, <laughs> they just gained, or they just got more muscle and they lost fat because it had a greater thermogenic effect. Yeah. And I think that these are really important points for the listener, one gram per pound ideal body weight. And also, you know, I was thinking about when you were talking about your dad and some of the aging population, the protein, way in which we consume it actually does make an impact. And as muscle tissue gets older, there's this this thing that happens. And does it happen to everybody? Probably. And there's this component of what we call anabolic resistance. Hmm. And it means that the muscle is less responsive. So muscle, a skeletal muscle, is a nutrient-sensing organ. Hmm. It's an endocrine organ, quite frankly. Um, It's a nutrient-sensing organ that is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids. 
amino acids, there's 20 amino acids, nine of which are essential. We actually eat protein foods for those amino acids. And skeletal muscle is exquisitely sensitive to one of the branch chain amino acids. So branch chain amino acids are uh, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And where do they come from? And very simplistically, they come from animal-based high-quality proteins. And that could be whey protein, it could be beef, it could be bison, whatever. If you have to kill it or it lived, um, I, I guess an egg doesn't actually well, live. Well, we would say if, yeah, if, it, if it has maybe. a face, a soul, and a mother, it's, <laughs> it fits within our paradigm of protein. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, and um, that may be true. And I understand that people have ethical issues with eating animals. And- uh, but <laughs> this is an issue too. Like um, if you look at it, I mean, the research is very, very conclusive that if you're trying to eat a diet that's the least impactful in terms of animal cruelty and um, you know uh, harming animals, a one a diet of pasture-raised meat, the one you're recommending, is by far the least blood-soaked diet. Mm. Uh, we had a guy jump on uh, who follows one of our programs, uh, Cowboy is his handle, uh, who actually is a um, does this. He raises beans in these uh, on a huge farm, and his comment was like, "Let me sell or send you a picture of the dead animals that we pick out of the combine as we're going through to make the vegan food." And he's like, "It is by far the most uh, mm. dis like uh, like dis." Uh, you know, connected diet on the planet for the fact that it's the most blood soaked mm. and the vegans don't want to buy it. But um, all the research is totally clear that if, you know, uh, the ground nesting birds, all the other animals, everything that eats those beans gets killed in the combine. And it's, it's fucking cruel. I, I saw on social, if you're familiar with the show Yellowstone, Kevin Costner, yeah. I don't watch it, but I'm familiar. There's a clip of people standing, protesting. I don't know the where they're protesting. Well, it'd be Yellowstone, which would be in Montana. But I don't know if it's a, a courthouse or at his farm. I, I just well, don't know. The, they raise animals on it. Okay. Yeah. So then. But I haven't seen the show. But Costner I'm, comes out and essentially is like, what are you doing? And then they, you know, standing for animals, blah, 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 vegan. And then he's like, okay, let me explain to you. And essentially went yeah. through that. So now, I don't know. It's a popular show. Well, I I posted, there was a guy who um, was a researcher, and they were trying to figure out what the the most ethical diet on the planet was. And it's the one we're recommending. And he gave all the research and went through it. And uh, I posted a picture of it. Uh, A bunch of vegans follow me. And it was the most, like, (laughs) ridiculous attacks, like these personal attacks on things. And I'm like, dude, I'm not making this shit up. Like, this is, if you want to read the book or if you want to, you know, argue with this just because you've bought in on this ideology. And this is where I, um, I get real, like, sideways on shit where people buy into ideology and they abandon humanity. Where you're like, uh, you know, you're, you're subscribing to this thing that allows you to do ugly shit to people. Mm-hmm. You know, you have these vegans show up like, to protect the animals. we got to murder these people. And you're like, this doesn't make any fucking sense right. to me. Yeah. I, um, I have uh, had the same experience. As you know, on my Instagram, I'm very pro-protein and pro-beef. And I would say it's not for, I mean, it's for a multitude of reasons, but I do believe that there needs to be some physicians balancing the narrative that is so deeply soaked in how we should go more plant-based. And, and you know, I'm a trained geriatrician, which means I've spent more time at the bedside of dying individuals than I care to remember. Yeah. And when you do that and you see the frailty and you see the fall that killed their grandmother, or you see people that can never get out of a walker and go into the hospital because they fell at their grandkids' play and now have pneumonia and die. You, the, the conversation about reducing dietary protein is, is like a joke. It, it's, 
it makes no sense. And the youth and the people in middle age that are arguing this, I, I would love for them to think forward and think about their parents and well, watching their parents age. And, and I, I want to finish this one, one yeah. thought, by the way. What do we need to do to change the way in which we consume dietary protein for an older individual? And that means actually, it's funny you said 70 grams of protein would be your breakfast or your one meal. And we know that um, the evidence is, is pretty clear that consuming a minimum of 30 grams of protein and probably for an aging individual, you're looking at between 40 and 50 per meal to, to be able to overcome that anabolic resistance. And could you do it with shakes and adding branched chain amino acids? Yes, but having that high quality protein that's nutrient dense is critical to stimulate that tissue that is now aged. I was going to ask you about the anabolic resistance because we had um, Keith Barr on the podcast who was talking about protein and he uh, referenced the study about the anabolic window. You know, uh, every bro science bodybuilder is <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. you got the anabolic window. All that research was done on aged individuals. So for those individuals that did some form of, you know, exercise, uh, that's 30 to 60, 90 minute window was vital because the insulin sensitivity and their ability to build muscle or potentially be healthy, it was so tracked because of the, I guess, the lack of anabolic or sorry, the amount of anabolic resistance. Whereas for kids that were, he said, like 18 year old trained individuals, it might doesn't be matter. 72 hours. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. So we were just trying to dispel that myth, but yeah. it got me thinking about older people. One mm -hmm. thing that we're not doing is promoting strength training and then, you know, some form of high quality protein within a 30 to 60 minute window because their anabolic window is so short. I think that there's a, one, I think that in a, a 24 hour period of protein consumption is probably at the bottom of the pyramid, right? Everybody needs to think, what is your 24 hour protein consumption? Critical. If you are an athlete, if you are young and healthy, even if you're in your 40s and 50s, are you okay with just making sure that you're getting in that 24 hour um, protein bolus or protein load? I would say, sure. And people would argue and say that the anabolic resistance or the anabolic window doesn't matter for an aging individual. And I would say that I don't agree with that at all. And I would say that the day, here's where um, some of the data comes from is that there's been papers and I think this guy, I think it's Cat uh, Stanza, I'll send it to you. Okay. And what they found was that after resistance training, there's increased blood flow. There is increase in nutrient delivery to the muscle. That anabolic threshold, which is really what we're talking about is muscle protein synthesis, mm -hmm. is lowered. Therefore, the, their tissue can respond like a young tissue if they are getting those amino acids. Well, why, um, so the anabolic resistance like why does it happen is i mean uh, the aging effect are we talking about hormones or is it just a genetic thing that as we age our fucking bodies trying to kill us <laughs> yeah, off to depopulate the planet i i think that there are multiple schools of thought on this in terms of anabolic resistance there there's a belief that the that happens just as an individual ages there's a decrease in mitochondria function, there's a decrease in insulin sensitivity as individuals age, there's a decrease in that muscle protein synthesis response to both exercise and amino acids. Is it an aging effect? Possibly. I think it's also as individuals age, they train less and in less dynamic ways. Mm -hmm. They're not doing sprint interval training, which we know is, or at least uh, from what I've seen that the evidence means that it improves mitochondria, uh, mitophagy, the turning over of new mitochondria, the mitochondria can, you can clean out old mitochondria, old geriatric mitochondria, and potentially 
um, increase effusion of smaller mitochondria, that there's multiple domains of activity that older individuals seem to do less of. Um, so when, um, years ago when um, I retired from the NFL, I got to speak at an event for CrossFit and they asked me about all these different types of mixed modal training. And um, I don't know if I hurt people's feelings, but I was like, in, in all the times that I've trained and all the stupid things I've done, the only two things that never got easy were lifting heavy weights and sprinting. And I was like, if that was my barometer, because they asked like, hey, what's the ideal training? And they were trying to basically get me to say, ah, oh, you know, you should be CrossFitting every day. And not to say that like, Lightweights lifted max intensity, their glycolytic capacity wasn't difficult, but there is an accommodation phase where all of a sudden it doesn't suck like it did when it first started and you can kind of power through it. The only thing that never got easy was lifting heavy weights and sprinting. I never got done sprinting and thought to myself, oh, that was good. I can't wait to do that again. Like it was um, like it's it's the uh, and so if you go back and you were to say like what two things should I fight for longevity? The ability to sprint and the ability to lift heavy weights feels like a pretty damn good place to start. I think that that's a great place to start. I think that that's a great place to start and it becomes more difficult. And, and sprint interval training, right? So if we were to define sprint interval training, uh, and your audience knows this much better than I do, I, I don't say that I'm an exercise expert at all, but that's, you know, you're going to be touching 90% your VO2 max. That can be difficult for an aged individual, but if they could do it once a week, even if it's at a very small, you know, maybe it's four minutes total, yeah. once a week, once every other week before they get to that aging point, that kind of geriatric point, an ounce of prevention, man, is critical. Strength also, uh, strength and hypertrophy training for aging, because again, that muscle mass in and of itself, when an individual falls, is critical. Yeah. And also when we think about just overall blood level management, right? So skeletal muscle is a site of glucose disposal. We know that there's issues, again, we talked about in the beginning of the podcast about elevated levels of insulin, elevated levels of blood glucose. When individuals become sarcopenic, which is a decrease in muscle strength and arguably muscle size, then a lot of their blood levels of uh, whether it's triglycerides, whether it's insulin, whether it's glucose, change, become less desirable. And one way to counteract that is to have high quality, healthy muscle that doesn't look like a marbled steak. So uh, as we age, we lose mitochondrial density. Mm -hmm. um, we also lose the ability to recruit uh, motor units. Absolutely. So lifting some form of heavy weights and doing something that neurologically recruits a ton of motor units. Mm -hmm. um, like we've been, I mean, for some of the older people we worked with, uh, EMS devices. Yes. Were, were I, excellent I am for that. very, huh. very strong believer in EMS devices. Actually, I just started playing. Have you guys heard of the Catalyst suit? Mm-mm. Um, Oh, I'll, I'll yeah. have to connect oh, wait, you. Is that that full body one? You guys reason? are going to laugh, but the reality is, is here's a real issue, right? So they were using it in Europe when I went over there because uh, I, I was working for Compax and PowerDot. And in Europe, they actually have a model where you go in and put these suits on and you exercise while they fucking There's zap a, you. a gym in B-Cave. Wait, the fuck I, up, really? I just, excuse me, I just got one of these suits and it's amazing because here's what I'm thinking, Okay. Right now, when we're young and healthy... Does we, it have anything to do with you looking like a superhero? Yeah, I really uh, like that part. Okay. I even got myself a <laughs> cape, cape from my daughter's room. I have a, uh, da -da -da. I have a mask I like to wear, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I got that too. Yeah. There's a hair flip. Um, one of the issues that I see... I was going to say, those rings, uh, I keep waiting for them to shoot lasers out. I know, like, you're lucky. You're, like, you are welcome. Dude, if she gets into a fight, uh, I'm, not, I'm not taking that left punch. Look I, at the size yeah, of that thing. I win. I, but... Arguably, I'm 110 pounds and 5'1". Loudmouth, but all, all things, that, that's totally, yeah, 
this is gonna be scared of my birthday. Are, are you from uh, New York originally? I'm from Chicago. Oh, from Chicago. Yeah, okay. yeah. So same thing. F from Chicago, Chicago, yeah. or one of those. From Chicago, Chicago. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Gosh, you guys. Uh, Sorry. Got, got we me off, tend to do that. Yeah, I'm really shitty about that. Uh, uh, EMS suit. Okay, so here. Superheroes. Rah, superhero. Okay. Now, real talk here. You guys are big, large, athletic humans. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You can pay me later. <laughs> he already slipped me a five under the table. The reality is, if we don't course correct, you guys are. Um, you know, like the 1%. Let's be truthful here. You, you mean know. we're living in a ranch in the middle of Texas? Yeah. Like, it's a great country. Yeah. Okay. But you know how to train. You've lived a life of physical fitness. The majority of individuals do not have that within them. Okay. Then what happens is they get to 40s and 50s. They're put on a statin. They have all kinds of issues. Nothing changes. They go into their 60s. Okay. Now... We're like, oh God, you have osteoporosis. Oh, you need to lift some weights. Your blood sugar is a total mess. You need to exercise. Completely untrained, untrained individual who has been largely sedentary their whole life. I think that in those moments, having an EMS suit, some kind of stimulation so that there is a mind-muscle connection that they have never developed and a blood flow and or blood flow restriction is mm. critical. And I think that we take for granted the fact that we are athletic and this is what we believe to be what everyone should be doing. But the, you know, I did my fellowship at WashU in St. Louis. I gotta tell you, the average BMI there, no offense to any St. Louisans, is- 400. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I just- You did bring up the BFR. Um, so uh, we did extensive stuff with BFR for almost a decade. And the one thing that was amazing in all the research was the fact that it created greater uh, plasticity within the veins. And actually, like like that piece was so cool where you could take elderly people that had, or was it, I'm gonna fucking butcher it, arteriosclerosis, the yes. hardening of the veins, and that by basically pumping it through, it added a greater flexibility and a more, I mean, I don't know, a dynamic a venous wall mm -hmm. and basically shattered all that stuff. So just from the fact that they, uh, and I remember the study we did, and we used this on people, people that had heart attacks that started doing BFR actually fixed a ton of their problems that they, that the doctors were trying to use through, and I'm not making any medical advice, but I'm just saying that nah. they were, no, I'm not. One comment on that, was it the BFR or the fact they started to lift weights? Well, but think about the BFR. What's wild is you get this amazing thing where normally you go through what's like a hierarchy of uh, motor unit recruitment, right? So you got to fatigue those, those slow ones to get to those fast ones. What's wild is in the BFR environment, um, the basically it happens at the same time. So they could activate those high threshold motor units easily with much lighter weights. So, I mean, for individuals, it had these just amazing mm -hmm. effects. Is this EMS suit, does that include like a BFR cuff? No. It well, doesn't. I think I we're on to we did that. No, well, we did that. You remember we were doing EMS with BFR. You guys are trying to and shock day. therapy. I'm pretty sure we gave ourselves rhabdo. The only <laughs> issue is because I played in the NFL and I'd probably given myself so much rhabdo, it was like probably like a seal having a shot. It's like fucking throwing like a, a drop of water yeah, into the yeah, sea, into yeah. the sea, seeing as you're. Give me you're, another one. Yeah, yeah. you're at Chickies, which you ever you've been to Chickies? So, mm -hmm. oh, uh, last time we were there, I got terrible food poisoning. So, what, what is Chickies? Chickies uh, a bar in Virginia Beach that all yeah. the seals go to. So when we were oh, there, oh, then I definitely have not been yeah. there. So we, who would want to hang out with those guys? Yeah, a bunch of bad baseball hats and God. shitty tattoos and flannel shirts <laughs> and jeans. Yeah, cut yeah. off uh, cargo shorts. <laughs> 
big and trucks. flip-flops. Yeah, and flip-flops. And by the way, I'm married to a seal, yeah. so for... And, 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 you know, the funny thing is, is I would say that and I'd be like, oh, we're going to offend people, but then I'm not offending them. We're good. Uh, I think if you go through life worried that you're going to offend people, you will just offend everybody. I think if you do, if you don't Facts. worry about it, yeah. you'll also offend everybody. And then you know, <laughs> everybody can be offended. <laughs> then it's very personal. They can choose to be offended. Uh, yeah. You know. But yes, I've not been to Chickies, but, but I've been to McPee's. Uh, have you been in Coronado Beach? Um, many times, but I can't remember that place. But uh, last time we were at Chickies, we went with Uncle Dave Brewer, and uh, we got this huge seafood tower. And uh, I got I threw up for the next two days at the seminar. To this point, one of the guys we, I ran into recently who was at that seminar was like, I've never seen anybody throw up that much. Yes. And the EMS suit yeah, and benefits. For try it. being pregnant, by I, the way. I see the angle. <laughs> I see the angle. Don't recommend that. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't want to be pregnant. I had a pregnant wife. I, I wish that upon no I person. agree. I agree. So limited. Uh, women got the raw end of the deal. We did. 100%. I, dude, I've, I've said it for years, having... Uh, um, been a husband and has gone through this whole thing, I'm like, I am so glad I'm not a woman. There's no fucking way I would have done this. I had hyperemesis gravidum with my first child. I threw up 10 times a day for the entire pregnancy. And I still worked out. In between, I did a lot of, it was a, I went through a phase where I was doing a ton of kettlebells. Ah. So I just brought a bucket with me. I'm like, listen, I'm gonna throw up anyway. I might as well be fit and throw up. Uh, kettlebells are another interesting one for the fact that the squeezing of the handle ramps up blood pressure. Hmm. And so we found that actually doing BFR work with swinging kettlebells produced a really interesting effect. I should try that. I yeah. have a new... Um, so put it on the arms and the legs, uh, like top of the leg, obviously the arm, okay. and then uh, do like... Uh, I'm going to try that when I get 30 home. swings, minute on, minute off for about 10 minutes. And uh, that like would fuck a lot of people up. I'm, I'm definitely trying that. Nice. So um, EMFs were really... <laughs> EMS suits. EM, EMS suits. EM. Uh, maybe I said EMF, EMS suits. So I think that there is... I think that that's going to be the future in terms of if we really believe that muscle is the organ of longevity and we have lot, you know, millions of people who are uh, not training and at least a third of the population is obese or overweight, at least one out of three people, um, what are we going to do? Well, what this I think what we have to do is we have to start with some parameters, right? Like um, I think people need a target to hit. So if you were going to say to somebody, like we've already said that, like, uh, you know, like we use body fat, right? But mm -hmm. people don't realize that body fat is just a percentage of muscle in relation to, to, mm -hmm. to fat. So uh, if you want to drop your body fat, it's actually, I would say, more beneficial to gain five pounds of muscle than it is to lose five or ten pounds of fat because it changes everything. Yeah. So what's the what's the target for individuals? Um, I think you have to put something together. Like um, if you're 22 years old and six foot tall, is there a certain amount of muscle that need to carry? And then almost like with the actuary charts, like show that as you age, you know, obviously we're fighting to never lose muscle, yeah. but like they, I think we have to give people targets and like, okay, you know, 10% body fat um, for most people is beyond attainable. Right in this deal okay so now let's switch it the other way and be like okay how much muscle should you carry in relation or, or to size or height or i'm just wondering like what's the what's the target we got to shoot at great question and i would say first of all nobody could answer that question we know that <laughs> you're a crazy person um, no actually i put together a chart and i will send it to you it's it's oh, in my cool. book God I, damn it. I have a book that's coming out in a year right it's forever the manuscript is done i will send you guys the chart and what i think would be amazing 
is with the volume of online coaching and training that you guys are using, maybe we can collect some data. Oh yeah. Uh, we've done this. Uh, we've collected data because we did it with, uh, we did with blood flow restriction training. We also did with EMS Great. where we had 700 people in a training program. I'm going to send you my, I'm going to send you my chart. So basically I created a chart. It's an appendicular skeletal mass index. Mm. And I did it with a PhD uh, from Princeton. Her name is Alexis Cowan. We uh, looked at all the data and all the literature and we looked at what a sarcopenic, and so appendicular skeletal mass is, um, you know, looking at all the appended, you know, everything, arms, legs, not the trunk, which is interesting. Um, and we looked at where a sarcopenic person would be, you know, where they define sarcopenia, and it's like divided by height, meter squared. Um, and then we took the athletic population and we calculated and we put those into charts. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we came up with what we believe to be a target in appendicular skeletal mass. And I can't just give you a number like, oh, it's 10 pounds because it's a formula that would have to go in. Uh, everyone would have to calculate, but it's an easy formula and uh, I'll send it to you. And I think that we should look at that. Oh yeah. And that's, so basically what we did is, it's very difficult to say what someone's skeletal muscle mass should be for an individual, nearly impossible. Mm. Because we don't know people's potential. Um, you know, we, we can look at other parameters like strength, we can look at other parameters like, you know, blood work, but it is still a nebulous concept. So we did create this chart, which Amazing. I will send you, and we can put it to your 700 people and, and see where they fall. So we have about 5,000. Perfect. Yeah, we can push it out to them. Um, Perfect. We can collect that data, but, you know, I, I, I do have some beliefs and that I've used for, you know, and with patients over the period of time. With, um, what are the other limitations on muscle? I mean, um, you know, obviously we, we've been really talking about, uh, you know, protein and the fact that we're underfed on protein. Yeah. So once we've established that piece, what are going to be some of the other limiting factors for them? I mean, obviously uh, they, they need to do some form of loading. Yeah. You know? And then like hormonally, um, mm -hmm. dietary wise, because uh, another always kind of scary one um, that, taught, that Tom Inkledon brought up years ago was the food that we're eating today is about one tenth as nutrient rich as it was 100 years ago. So when you sat down to eat the diet, like he goes, if you were to go and say, hey, this is my diet here in 2020, and then you go back 100 years to uh, 1920, and the same meal and you were to do a nutritional analysis, the food we're eating is one-tenth as nutrient dense. I think that um, when we think about nutrient density, so number one, what are some of the things that are going to be challenging for muscle? As we age, there's a, a shift in fiber type, unless you're really training, right? So there's type one, type two fibers, type two fibers, we largely, you know, type 2A, type 2X, largely the bulky fibers that you get from training. Mm -hmm. There's a natural propensity for those to transition over to type one, or, and then the type one fibers are the, the skinny kind of uh, fibers that maybe, you know, have more oxidative capacity, but uh, I think it's challenging when it comes to muscle mass. The next thing that you're bringing up is nutrient density. And I would say that the nutrient density of red meat and animal products is probably very similar mm -hmm. because we're not eating, we're eating them for very specific nutrients. We're eating them for zinc, uh, for iron, for, you know, maybe you're not eating it for omega-3 or conjugated linoleic acid, but the, the nutrients, the B vitamins, the zinc, the iron, selenium, I would argue that that tissue hasn't changed that much. And people could say, oh, well, there's less omega-3. Yeah, but if you're eating beef for omega-3, you got a whole other exactly. fucking problem. Exactly. exactly. Which is like, you know, that one exactly. walnut you have, just kick that out of right. fucking deal. 
creatine. I don't think that the that the nutrient density of that tissue has changed much. Uh, that's exactly what he said, that the, oh. that because of the quality of the grass. And then we had another person that you should get on the podcast, a guy named Peter, Peter. Ballerstead, yeah. who's the world's foremost leading forage agronomist. It means he <laughs> travels the world looking for the most nutrient-dense grass on the planet and then bringing those seeds to farmers mm. for their rudiments. Did I fuck that one up? Rudiments? Well... You just fucked up the part where you asked, did I fuck that up? Yeah, because I fuck it up all the time. Um, and then what they'll do is they feed the, uh, they'll get them to grow. Shit. Now I'm Ruminants. 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 I always throw an edge. Now you said it. I have this rule where you never correct the, no, I, I John's got a rule, always correct it. Yeah, I have a deal. If you fuck up, if you guess it. Uh, my brain works real fast and I'll mess up and I'll be like, ah, and then in my head I'll be like, I think I threw an extra vowel in there. But, um. So Peter, what he would do is he would travel the world looking for the most nutrient-dense grass. And my question is, how do you know it's the most nutrient-dense grass? He's like, we bring it back, we grow mm -hmm. it, we feed the animals, and then we slaughter them. And then we compare nutrient density of the meat compared to other stuff. And the problem is, is that the animals that they're slaughtering today are not nearly as nutrient-dense as they were X amount of years ago. Because the quality of the grass, so much so that he's traveling the world looking for the most mm. nutrient-dense grass and then trying to give the seeds to create a more nutrient-dense set of animals. But the question would be what nutrients are not, where is the density lacking? That I'd have and to go what, back to the podcast. And what, and what percentage is it really different? So, you know, is it a... a is it from, you know, there was a, I, I remember looking at some of the, the literature where people were saying, oh, grass fed, and by the way, most cattle spend yeah. two thirds of its land on, yeah. you know, whether it's. You can't uh, raise them in feedlots. Exactly. They have to roam. I'm so. never used to so, such an educated, well, uh, you know, people are so into doing this, this podcast yeah. for a long time and we've had some amazing people on. Um, and I also, uh, my, one of my best friends is Rob Wolf. I love Rob. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, so like uh, Doc, uh, Parsley, Rob, myself, like there's a, uh, um, we've been in this fight for a long time. Rob is a very good friend of mine yeah, and right. he is um, so, gen he's such a generous human. Yeah, he's the best. Yeah, uh, I would agree. I, I love that little nerd. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, uh, uh, I mean, I've known them forever. And, Wait, uh, you were saying the grass fed compared okay, to. Okay, so I, I was looking at uh, uh, one of the, these papers, you know, because when things come out, again, we all we we can't blindly accept truth, and even if everybody is talking about it, just because everyone's talking about it doesn't mean it's right. So I, I looked at one of these studies that was looking at conjugated linoleic acid, and the headlines were grass-fed has 80% more conjugated linoleic acid. And I remember looking at the nutrition analysis, and I, I think it went from something like point I don't know like three grams of, of, of CLA to 0. 0.8. So something so minuscule even to begin with. Yeah, but they yeah. got you with the headline. 80%? Yeah. But it was, it, so the question would be, is the nutrient density really different? Because the protein quality is not. Uh, the iron, mm -hmm. the zinc, selenium, I mean, well, if you're eating I, enough of it. I think that's what, um, yeah. well, at least when he talked about it, was that those numbers were lower than mm -hmm. the other thing that was scary is based on the the quality of the soil, we have only about 10 harvests left. And I think I might've got that from Diane what? Rogers. The idea that we have about 10 cycles of harvest left because we've effectively stripped the nutrients from all of the soil. Well, well Ballard said co-signed what she's saying in that if we're gonna go to the supermarket oh, yeah. and purchase the grass-fed or the, the grain-fed, eh, bang for your buck. Well, his whole thing was, because uh, the reason we had him on was we had a guy ask like, is it, is it possible to eat uh, like a high protein diet? I think it was like on what, like 
eight bucks a day or you know, like on, on a, on a, a budget. And we went to the supermarket and we figured out that what was, it, it was like beef tongue, organ meats. And we kind of skimmed this thing where you could eat like mm-hmm. 300 grams of protein for under $10 a day. The problem is you're just not going to get all muscle cuts. And uh, then we had Peter Bausch come on uh, talking about like, okay, wh- what's the best way to get it? And his whole deal was it's not whether or not you're eating grass-fed meat or grain-fed, whatever it is. Are you eating meat? Once you have that discussion, now yeah. you can go nuance. Like, what do you like? Can you go down and get it at your farmer's market? Like, what's available to you? Do, you know, if you don't have uh, a farmer's market and you're not, you know, wandering with you know hundreds of dollars in your pockets, you can go to Costco, you can go to these mm-hmm. things, and you can buy it at a reduced rate in bulk. And still meet your protein needs. Yeah. Uh, we, for the book, we looked at leucine content of um, foods. And actually, liver, shockingly, had a high leucine content. It yep. was nearly the same as muscle. And uh, I think it was Matt Lalonde was the one that uh, years ago when we were talking about um, uh, organ meats, he's like, don't cook liver. Because oh, uh, gross. The, I, I struggle to even eat liver. Uh, you eat liver? Oh, yeah. I actually am the only person in the history of mankind to get vitamin A toxicity from consuming too much liver. So this is where the, the uh, liver king's full of shit. Because uh, Tex, how much liver are you eating a week? Uh, I mean, four to eight ounces. Four to eight ounces a week. Uh, we had uh, somebody on the podcast who was on the podcast. What, keep going. No, but, was it uh, Zoom or was it in person? It was on Zoom. Uh, but we had somebody. Oh, that's we, why uh, we were talk- Muscle Maven. <laughs> yeah, Muscle Maven. So we were talking Ashley about. Ashley Benhound. Yeah, yeah I so love Ashley. We were talking about it. So Chris, I think, misheard the recommendations, which is maybe like three to four ounces a month. And so he was eating about three to four ounces no, a week. This was purely a financial decision because <laughs> liver is cheap. So four so, bucks a week I was consuming. So he's killing the liver. We uh, The guys from Longe- uh, Longevity. Uh, through Thorne come in and they did a dietary analysis. We did a bunch of like gut blood work stuff. And when Chris got his Krebs cycle, even though he was eating about three to 400 grams of carbohydrates a day, he had hacked through it and effectively was in dietary ketosis and had given himself vitamin A toxicity by over consuming liver. Yeah. Did you feel it? Oh no, but I am very, my That's impressive. Uh, uh, interoception is very, very low. low. <laughs> Chris is like, yeah, I, I feel fine. Everything's fine. Like, uh, have you yeah, ever seen yeah. the meme where, where the whole room's on fire and the dog's totally. like, everything's fine? That's Chris. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I remember years ago, Lalonde telling me um, that cooking the liver actually, because it is such a high iron content, destroys a lot of the nutrient density within the liver. So his recommendation is throw it in the freezer. And when it's frozen, just cut it up into little pieces and eat it like ice cubes. So that's what I do. Uh... Not going to be doing that anytime soon, yeah, me, but I'm, I'm, yes. My wife won't do it either. Um, but as kids, uh, once a month, my mom would make liver and onions. And when you cook and throw enough onions in there, it doesn't taste like anything. I could believe that. Yeah. So raw liver. But yeah. Um, fuck, what were we talking about now? Well, you almost died from vitamin A toxicity. Crazy. So, so the <laughs> fact that the liver king is claiming to eat that amount of liver every day, there's no fucking way. Well, I, I credit the podcast, John, for saving my life because then we get this free longevity test. Otherwise, I'm just four <laughs> bucks a week. Sign me up. All of a sudden, Chris turns white and just keels over and dies. Well, we just bury you party. I mean, the show must go on, John. <laughs> good fertilizer. Good fertilizer. Oh, geez. yeah. G- give me back to the earth. I, I think that we were talking about it because the idea of muscle meat and making things affordable for individuals. Yeah. Um, what else? Well, on that note, not all proteins are created equal, and I think this They're is an excellent not. point. Are you serious? Because there is a big wave of 
the pea proteins and talk about Kui Bono well, and all these documentaries that are coming out. Uh, game, well, it did come out. I mean, Game Changers, which we spent an, um, uh, way too much time curb stomping, mm-hmm. but where they were pushing this pea protein initiative. Oh, because the uh, producer, James um, Cameron, CEO, had just bought a, but uh, invested like 150, 140 million in a pea production company, right? Yeah. Or oh, yeah, and a few professional athletes. Yeah, Chris we're Paul. All, yeah, we're all investors in it. So you take James Cameron and made Titanic. I can crush this motherfucker. Yeah, that you know, we think about what are the things that are going to do a lot of damage for decades to come. That movie is one of them. It's um, going to be something that we are going to have to undo and deal with for decades. The other aspect of the pea protein conversation is it doesn't exist in nature and we have no idea what the long-term ramifications or the unintended consequences of a pea isolate has the potential to do. It's not that pea has estrogen, but it does have estrogen-like activity. And while it has protein, right, because of it's an isolate nature, there are other bioactive ingredients in that that we don't have data on and we have no idea with the amount of consumption what that's gonna look like. Uh, and also the amount of GI distress that I got from eating it. Uh, so we got some pea protein to try it. And uh, I like looked at that stuff and thought I was going to have my stomach was going to explode. I've never in my life had that bad GI stress from something mm. like to the point where people are like, what do you think about pea protein? I'm like, don't I, 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 think I can't even listen, look at it. If you can't tolerate a whey protein and you really are against animal proteins, could you do a rice pea blend? Yes. Should that be your primary source of protein? I think that it's risky. Yeah. I think it's risky over a period of time. Um, well, yeah, the bodybuilder dudes that were in Game Changers um, that were all carrying a ton of muscle. If you go back and look, they were consuming a thousand grams of protein a day from different, uh, you know, vitamin sources, and mm-hmm. also taking copious amounts of steroids. And also, uh, one out of five vegans go bad. I mean, I think that only one out of five. I mean, I, I don't remember. First what it of was, all, do you know how hard it is to get up <laughs> every morning knowing that you're not going to fucking eat a steak? Like I was like a Joe Rogan posted a re- repost some recently where it was, um, you know, we've never found any cave drawings of salads. It's true. And, that, and, that's and, very yeah. funny. Yeah, I mean, people, a lot of people send me that. Yeah. It, it's hysterical. It's true. If you look yeah. at every one of these cave drawings, it's always them hunting these big animals mm. and there's fire in this. I mean, the most basic things, it's true. I mean, mm. like, can you imagine getting up and being like, I just get salad and fucking hummus today. Like there's no way I'm fucking, I'm, I'm not getting out of bed. Yeah. So highlighting the caves and there's lack of. Uh, salad drawings is one way to argue, but how else can we empower our listeners who their family members watch this or see the narratives? How can we can empower them to say, Hey, no, avoid it. Eat meat. Well, if they are going uh, plant-based or vegan for health concerns, I would say that there's no evidence to support that a well-balanced high protein diet with fruits and vegetables, you know, I mean, the uh, vegan diet isn't going to be better than that. Well, what about evidence the, doesn't support that? No, and um, anybody that says it does is a crazy person. Um, but <laughs> what's amazing about this world is that everybody likes living out on the fucking rails. So then you go the exact opposite way, and, uh, then, and then you're getting the Paul Saladinos of the world that are like all vegetables are bullshit and they're fucking toxic and killing you. Which I fight as much war on that as we do on the other side, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden, well, this guy's saying that I should never eat vegetables, and I'm like, I don't believe there's any research to support any of his deals. And if you're looking for a greater bioavailability, just heat them up and cook them a little mm-hmm. bit, which has always been our recommendation. That if you cook vegetables, like, you know, especially cruciferous vegetables, like if you cook them, they become more bio- bioavailable and you can mm-hmm. digest them. I just don't know if there's ever a point where you just get rid of everything and just stick within. I mean, because uh, when I, I did the talk on, on uh, metabolic flexibility, the person that can eat the most 
diverse diet tends to be the healthiest individual. I would agree with that. And I think that we're starting to see that in microbiome research. Uh, on my podcast, actually, I just recently had um, the head of Cedar sinai uh, of Cedars sinai um, Institute, the Microbiome Institute. Oh, wow. Her name is Suzanne Devkota. She's amazing. She's and she's seeing a reduction in the gut biome by people with these elimination diets. One of Yes. So one of the things that we talked about on the podcast is that those that eat a diverse uh, diet with fruits and vegetables and fermented food and proteins do the best, look yeah. the best. Yeah. I mean, the... Um uh, one, Which one isn't of, rocket science, right? Well, one of those key factors is uh, if you could, and, and you, you hear, um, uh, who was it? Um, uh, Jordan Peterson's daughter, you know, super autoimmune issues mm -hmm. went on and became uh, carnivore and fixture problems. And I'm always like, great. She had a sickness. She used it as a tool. But if you're so metabolically broken that you can only uh, absorb and digest one macronutrient, let's say just protein, like how like what's the gut biodiversity and really how healthy are you? Cause we know the healthiest individuals are the ones that can eat the greatest diversity of diet. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of merit to that. And also eating it, we were not designed to eat the same foods all year round. I, I mean, maybe we were, but I, I don't believe that we were. I think that there's, I couldn't agree more. There's probably more benefit to eating what is in season. And in the winter months, maybe you're eating mostly meat and mostly carnivore esque or whatever is available. And then during the summer months, also depending on the location, you're eating more fruits and carbohydrates or whatever. It's, that would make uh, logical sense to well, me. It, it makes the same sense in terms of periodizing your training. Yeah. Right? Like you don't do the same thing every single day. Like uh, like we periodize the training. At certain points, you train more strength. At times uh, the year, we do something more dynamic. There's more conditioning phases. Like we periodize over an entire year. Why wouldn't you periodize your diet the same way? Convenience. Great point. Magic meals. Well, but also the problem is, is I would eat the exact same thing for every meal for the rest of my life and still be excited about eating it. <laughs> my wife's like, I've never seen anybody after all these years still excited to eat a steak. I'm like, it's like the first one I've ever had. I feel the same way. Yeah. I like, like if, if I have a salad, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a salad. Like, I'm not like, oh my God, I can't wait to eat this salad and these vegetables. Yeah. What kind of steak are we going to put on the salad? Yeah. Well, you had a term that I picked up from one of the pods, the metabolic currency. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? And I know it's different than metabolic flexibility. So how would you describe muscle as metabolic currency? Well, it's not just the muscle at rest, because we know muscle at rest doesn't do much for uh, calorie consumption, which most people, people often think that it does. But resting muscle is not where the majority of calorie expenditure is. It's typically organs and other things. However, muscle is your metabolic currency as it relates to anything dietary related. And also you can leverage muscle. Last time I checked, you couldn't exercise your liver. Maybe if you're in the uh, SEAL teams and you're going out. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, Saturday nights at chicks. I was going to say, Tex, I yeah. mean, you consuming liver with your vitamin A toxicity, were probably stressing the shit out of your liver. Probably. Yeah, yeah. There is no way to, I mean, unless you are. Uh, well, we can train our hearts. You can train your heart through your muscle. Yeah, through your muscle. Through your skeletal muscle. You know, sure. we're talking about cardiac muscle or smooth muscle, but skeletal muscle by exercise, whether whatever modality you choose, this becomes your metabolic currency. You utilize more fuel depending on whatever it is that you're doing. And also, when we think about glucose disposal and insulin resistance, muscle is the primary starting point. It's not the end point, it's the primary starting point. That's where muscle is your metabolic currency. If you want to combat obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, blah, 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 depression, muscle is where it's at. 
It's not the uh, end point. It's the starting point. Well, um, if that's the case, then why, uh, like, so uh, years ago when the whole fasting thing popped up, uh, it was probably like 2010, um, we looked at, I, I remember there was a ton of research came out on it, and I kind of looked at it and was like, you know, the, based upon everything that we've read, it just looks like a fat and fancy way to get into caloric <laughs> restriction. Right, like, uh, you know, shorten your time feeding window, easier way to do caloric restriction. And I know all the research for when calories are equated for and are the same. The results are the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden it went away. And now it's come back like... Uh, Isn't that interesting like fucking, to see like, the uh, gangbusters? Oh, my God. It's, Fitness is cyclical. Dude, it, it is. Uh, and if you're around long enough, you see it. But I felt like we beat it back. And now all of a sudden, everywhere I go, it's like uh, everything's like this fasting. And I'm like, um, mm -hmm. like, there's never a situation where the body actually works in benefit when it's underfed. So, I mean, the idea of purposely putting yourself into a fed deal and people ask me, well, would you fast? I'm like, oh, I don't eat, I just eat dinner on Sunday, but that's just more because I just don't mm -hmm. feel like eating. Um, and perhaps a better way to do calorie restriction, maybe exercise. Yeah. More effectively. Yeah. Like once you go lift some weights and do exercise, mm -hmm. which if we know for also the brain and everything mm -hmm. else, it works dramatically better than fasting. And I know uh, they had a bunch of interesting fasting studies on, on brain mass and uh, on great brain space and exercise was much more beneficial than starving yourself. You, one of the reasons why exercise, this is interesting. This is the concept that muscle is an endocrine organ. And when you train it, whether it's resistance training or aerobic activity, when you are engaging full muscle, large muscle contractions, muscles release interleukin-6, muscles release these myokines, irisin, which they believe it also releases BDNF. But it's not that the BDNF released from muscle actually crosses over the blood-brain barrier. It's the other myokines, specifically irisin and another myokine that actually stimulates the BDNF in the brain from exercise. Muscle is an endocrine organ that when you contract it, it interfaces with the immune system. It interfaces. It is more effective than any kind of medication that we could ever give based on the complexity and the robustness and its influence on the body's homeostatic mechanisms. What's the minimal effective dose? Great question. Do we know? We know that people should be doing something every day. It doesn't it depend on the training status of an individual and the goal. Are we looking for hypertrophy or are we looking to prevent atrophy? We know that if someone is sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day, they should be moving, moving for at least 60 minutes a day. But again, is that optimal or is that going to be just enough to keep insulin sensitivity for a period of time at bay? I think that people should be doing one session of pretty intense training, whether it's, you know, getting to that sprint interval training, whether it's once. And I'm not doing it once a week. I'm doing it maybe once every every two weeks. So just being transparent there. But. Also, well, you also got two kids and a doctor and you're traveling doing podcasts. Two little children and a husband which, finishing medical school. Which uh, Very if, little children. Uh, but here, here's the thing. And too, um, I, I always call this like a, a jack mom syndrome because my wife has this. Like just from picking up the kids, like the amount, like that's why the moms all, all get jacked arms. Like my wife's way more shredded than anybody I know <laughs> for the mere fact that like 100 miles an hour trying to manage those kids, you got to be in good shape. Yeah, got one kid on your shoulder. Oh my God, and you're dragging them everywhere. Just, oh yeah. I, I, I wasn't kidding. The day that they get out of diapers and you don't have strollers, it's like reclaiming your life because <laughs> you can just take them by the hand and be like, let's fucking go. Yeah, no, we don't have any of that. We've got the diaper and the stroller, three-year-old, 18-month-old. And you're like, how in the world does something this little need this much crap? I have no idea. <laughs> My mind is blown. Yep. 
And then the one time where you are like, nah, we don't need the diaper bag. It's like shit up the back. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, we used to call that blowouts. Oh my God. Uh, that's, that's not a good situation. Yeah, like uh, Chris, you'll experience that. You like go to pick the kid up and you're like, what is that? You pump and the diapers exploded up the back. And there's shit like all over the back and you're just like... Did not plan for that one. <sighs> then you're in like a bathroom trying to... It's just fucking like... We're taking a bath in the sink in the public <laughs> restroom sink. Yeah, Sorry. We, we did it at a restaurant. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're in there and people walk in and like any parent that walks in who isn't like, you need anything? Then you're like, fuck you. I'm gonna, you 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Well, it's like the same people get mad about kids crying on airplanes. I'm like, first of all, you forgot your noise-canceling headphones, which you have as a parent. And second of all, every parent in there knows that the last thing that that parent wants is that kid crying. Absolutely. And then people are giving them dirty looks. I get so fucking mad Me at that. Too. I'll, I'll just give people the finger. I'm going to fuck off. They don't want this shit either. Quit being a fucking asshole. Totally. And then the next strategy is to hand your child to the, you know, like the fix-your-face person. Uh, um, yeah. So... The, we should also just circle back to training. Obviously, it depends on training status, but if you, you should really focus, in my opinion, on hypertrophy and, you know, three to four days a week of resistance training, whatever your goal is, whether it's strength, hypertrophy, you shouldn't miss that. And shockingly, you should be doing some zone two cardiovascular training. I do, and I, I never really used to highlight the importance of that, but I think it becomes more important as we just think about cardiovascular health and overall functionality. Increases mitochondrial density. Yes. And, and that's one of those things that happen as we age and basically a big aerobic base mm -hmm. increases mitochondrial density, which is so fucking important. Right. And then you, you sack on that with like a creatine, which we've been recommending forever. Yep. I like to believe I'm the longest continuous creatine user <laughs> on the planet in 1992. Congratulations. Yeah. I was 14 years old. The old trainer we had gave it to us and I've been taking it for over 30 years. And so, uh, and you know, all the other, I, I remember I went through the, oh, it's going to give you hamstring pulls and this. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, it increases ATP, uh, fights off a neurological aging. Totally. I mean, all the other shit. But uh, I think a little resistance training, a little zone two, a little bit of creatine, high protein diet mm -hmm. is going to get us really far. I, I agree. And omega-3, omega-3 fatty acids for brain function. And actually for women, there's some data to support that it may be even more beneficial for women. Uh, how are you getting your omega-3s? Fish oil caps. Fish oil caps. Seems easy. Yeah, you mentioned what's your training goal. That's mm -hmm. it's it's very important to specify that and have a goal. So if a goal is simple as I'm going to work out or weight train two days a week, that's that's a good starting point. Well, uh, and, and then we have how we design training programs is reverse engineering from goals that we've identified in the field. So some more advanced like athleticism, yeah. all the way down to introduction to the barbell for a teenager or somebody new to strength training. And even, even below that, movement. So our Lean Enable program is our introduction training program. It's, a game it's all, game. yeah, dumbbells, strength training, build confidence, build the muscle, and, and then progress up to our other options. Well, the, the one thing we run into, too, is um, there's such an all or, all or nothing deal approach with exercise. And um, this is like the, the thing that I could, if I could die on the sword for one thing, it's like, um, oh, well, I, I don't have time to uh, invest five days a week. You're like, why do you have to invest five days a week? Can we start at two and see if it works? Mm -hmm. uh, I was dealing with my daughter on this in jujitsu. Um, so she goes and she's like, I think, uh, you know, she does gymnastics. She has basketball. She's like, I can only go two days. I'm like, then we'll go two days. And then if we get an extra day, we get a third. But at least you're going two days than somebody that wasn't. And so even with the strength training deal, oh, I, I can't exercise six days a week. I'm like, I fucking asked you to. 
like, have you give me one day, then we'll get two and we'll build upon it. And I think just if people could, or maybe it's just a, it's a crutch to not be able to do it. Oh, if I can't go hundred percent, I'm not going to do it. And I think we do that all to ourselves. It's this self-defeating prophecy. Here's the take home point on that. If they don't have time for fitness, then they better have time for illness. Ooh, it's a zinger. That's probably going to be the, uh, the, the title of this podcast. Yeah. If you don't have time for fitness, you're going to have time for sickness. Yeah. So you better factor that in. If you do not have the time for fitness, then you better be prepared to make time for that illness. Uh, the one thing that strikes me, um, and I see this all too often, um, and this is uh, one of like the, the things that scares me the most, is not necessarily any of this, but when you run into people that become prisoners in their own body. Mm-hmm. Where now oh, they're like physically, they can't do stuff. They can't do the Terrible. things you want. Um, yeah. Or like, um, you know, like you, you have a friend who you invite somewhere. Well, I can't go because my knee's bad. I'm too heavy in this. And they give you all this stuff and they've effectively become prisoners of their own device. And I'm like, at which point do you reclaim your health? And how do you do it? Should and, do it. Yeah. Should do it way before it be that wave of youth will close. And I, that's one of the reasons I feel so passionate about this is because I've seen the end of life. And you have to be willing to fight for people in the middle. Yeah. Right, you have a responsibility to do that, which is what you guys are doing. You know, it's not going to get easier. Yeah, I, I um, we just had our big um, capstone event for Power Athlete. We call the collective, and I gave a talk on one of some of the branding we do here at Power Athlete. And the reason I like skulls is uh, memento mori. So I was a rhetoric classics majors in college, and um, became you know super fascinated by all these different forms of philosophy. And more importantly, there was a section in time. Uh, where all these like great um, pieces of like philosophy, like the Stoics and all that kind of came to, you know, rhetoricians really came up. And it was um, the period in history where they call like the, the death of the gods and the before the birth of God, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden people lost faith in all the Roman gods. And then Jesus Christ and Christianity didn't start until years later. So there was about a 200 year period where we just didn't have monolithic religion. There was no God. And then people had faith. So it, they went to themselves. And that's why this, like, uh, all these elements of like uh, philosophy popped up in this time period. Mm-hmm. And the big one that I was always a fan of was a memento mori, which uh, I stemmed to Cicero, was this idea of like we're all going to die. I mean, that's the promise we get. Yeah. And Nobody gets out alive. No. And it's such it, a bummer, but true. Yeah. And all you have to do is the best at which you're here. So either you know make a decision to like live a life that's full to the very end, or fucking be a prisoner for the last twenty or thirty or forty years of your life because you're too stupid to fucking get out of your own way. Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, when you're young, you don't really realize it. And then all of a sudden you lose, like you said, you lose some people. Like I lost, you know, you lose your parents. You start losing people or like you did where you see it every day. And all of a sudden this becomes real where you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Like I would love to be extremely healthy and kick ass up until the day I don't. I, I would agree with that. I think we, we all want that. But if you haven't seen it, then all the little stuff and all the minutiae about people fighting this and this is what you should do. And, uh, you know, don't be strong. Don't eat a steak. Like, then when it gets to the point where they're at their, you know, kind of like closing in on that end of life, you know, no, I mean. Do you think it's, um, it's by design so that they're more able to accept their outcome and just die than have a, hey, I've been fighting my entire life. I've been struggling. I've been straining. I've been doing this and I'm going to fight this at the very end. I think that there's um, one thing that is probably more painful than death at the end of life, and that's regret. And people regret the risks that they didn't take. They regret 
the challenges that they didn't face, they regret, the physicality that they didn't have. And at the end of life, because I've had, again, more conversations at the bedside of people knowing that they're going to die. And that regret is probably even more painful than death for them. Did, um, did you ever see a movie? We, we've re referenced it on the podcast before. Um, it was with Albert Brooks, um, where it was called Defend Your Life. Mm -mm. So it, it was a movie in the 80s, and basically you die, and then you go to this place called Disneyland, which is purgatory. <laughs> and then they you, you go sit with a, like a... It, Peter. Like, what's that? Well, Peter's waiting at the gates of heaven. Yeah. For and so what he does is uh, you basically go to a, like a court case where you defend your life and they, you know, you have a prosecutor and a defense attorney and they analyze all these different parts of your life and decide whether or not you lived a life without fear and regret. Because if you didn't, then you get to go on and go to heaven. If not, you got to go back for reincarnation. Mm. And it was a movie I saw as a kid. And, um, you know, you hear people say, I never regret the things I did. I always regret the things I didn't do. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's 100 percent. That's why I just figured out that if you just say yes to everything, normally you're gonna to get to do some fun stuff. Yeah. And I got a chance to do some amazing things just by just saying, sure, let's do that. I think what you're talking about is global strength. Mental strength, physical strength, emotional strength, all, all that that is the true mark of an individual who at the end of their life doesn't have regret because they've had global strength. Have you ever met anybody that just took a deep breath and was like, I did what I needed to do, I'm ready to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always wanted to do. Like, I always imagine, like, we're sitting here I and have. we see, like, a big asteroid coming at us. <sighs> we kicked ass. I'm ready to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you want. You want, like, a feeling of, like, I did what I was going to do. I sowed my seeds. They grew big. I watched them. I tended my flock. And now I'm ready to go on and let somebody else do this. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel, Chris? You think you're... Can you take that big breath? Oh, man. That's... I got something to aim for. That's, that's an excellent... Uh, Conclusion, well, I feel. Uh, like I was telling her earlier, um, you know, when my dad passed away, uh, it was really interesting because it happened so fast. And I was thinking I was telling you the deal about me just basically doing the calculation. I knew when he was going to pass because the amount of weight he was losing from that cirrhosis off his liver. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that, you know, we were sitting there trying to like, you know, dad, here's things to fight for. And we went through his bucket list and he was just all the things that he wanted uh, on his bucket list were to redo with us. And um, on his deathbed, he didn't say, man, I wish I'd had a nicer Porsche. I wish I'd had better suits. I wish I had a nicer Rolex. Like, he was a trial attorney. He kicked ass. He did everything. There wasn't a single thing he regretted that was a monetary possession. It was, I wish I had more experiences with you guys. I got a chance to do all these things, but you guys weren't there, and it would have been fun to do it as a family. And I realized from that moment on, it's not about any of this stuff. It's about, like, you know, the experiences, meeting people, mm -hmm. places you go, things you see. Um, you know, uh, you know, I took my son to, you know, football, and... He didn't get a lot of playing time because uh, my wife uh, entered him. He's pretty smart. So he's in a, a higher grade than he should be. Mm. And they base the football based upon grades, not age. So all these kids are like seven turning eight and he's six. Oh, he's little. So yeah. he's, he's smaller. It doesn't move as fast. And so the coach of covers isn't playing him and he's kind of bummed. And I'm like, it's all right, dude. Believe me. Um, and he was like, well, daddy, how many games did you play? And I'm like, in the NFL? And he's like, forever. And I'm like I, like, I was trying to calculate these games. And he's like, do you think I could do that? And I'm like, 100% you can. Don't worry. You got to give a chance. Like, uh, like not, not everything grows at the same time, but you got it within your genes. That you know? is very sweet. Yeah. So, but I mean, that experience of, uh, you know, and for me as a dad, it's super cool. So, no, I'm, um, it's uh, like the experiences like this, like we said, like doing the podcast in person, things you remember, people you get to connect with. You don't forget that stuff. And that's the stuff that becomes important. 
you know, not like, hey, how many likes did I get on my Instagram, which I fucking despise. But I mean, that, that's the vehicle that people are choosing to influence mm -hmm. people. But I don't know. I still like this media. Me too. Thank, thank you guys so much for having me well, on. Thank you for making the trip. I'm glad we were able to, to make it work. Yeah, it's awesome. And you get to see the ranch and actually come and see our collection of cool skulls and hammers. I would never miss that. Yeah. Uh, that's not a real monkey skull, actually. So. That is or is it's not? It's not. Oh. Yeah. Thank God. Well, we can, we can tell people. Well, we can tell people whatever we want, but I'm pretty sure uh, they wouldn't send me a monkey skull through the mail. Well, you apparently got a bunch of haters that follow you to just be gaslit and say something. So I find uh, that interesting. <laughs> Why follow somebody you despise? Uh, I think if everything that you're doing, people like, you're not doing a good job. I think to, to the markers should be, um, if we learned anything from Ali G, who I'm a big Ali G fan, I, I love Sasha Baron Cohen, but he, Ali G made a great point. He said, uh, video games has taught us anything that you know you're going the right way if you encounter bad guys. Love it. So, cool. Well, thanks for well, tuning in another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. bye.